The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast, a political triad episode for your Thanksgiving week. We are bringing a cornucopia of political opinions. I am, of course, Justin Robert Young. Joining me as always from the Congressional Dish podcast, live and direct from Southern California, Jen Briney. Welcome back. Hello. Thank you for having me back. And of course, uh, the now Austin local. That's right. Andrew Heaton. Shadow mayor of Austin, Texas. Shadow mayor of Austin. Here and caffeinated (laughs) and in tweed and raring to go back on PX3 with a rational troika. Very excited. There we go. Uh, Now, uh, I threw this out to my Discord because uh, heads up to everybody in case some gigantic worldwide cataclysmic event happens between uh, when we are recording this on Friday, the 19th of November and when it airs uh, Wednesday of the following week. But we wanted stuff that would kind of keep a little longer uh, uh, topic wise. And so one of the things that was suggested because on Twitter the day before there was a gigantic conversation about crypto specifically because the website crypto.com has bought the naming rights to the Staples Center in Los Angeles, the formerly named Staples Center. Wow. Now, okay. I never I never quite knew. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess it is it is through the excellence of some of the the Laker and Clipper greats and I guess the L.A. Kings greats that uh, uh, people had such a fondness for retail office supplies with staples, but uh, (laughs) there was a lot of anger about crypto.com being something I kind of found it as as a bit of a sign of the times, but the larger conversation is we seem to have uh, yet another front of the culture war. And part of it is the idea that crypto is, is a, a new fangled scam. It is a pyramid scheme. It is a, a blight on, on the environment. And so for two people that have uh, reasonably well thought out opi- opinions on most things, I figured I would toss it out here. Jen. I, oh, I was about to say I have a three point tirade, but I will defer to Jen. Okay, go ahead. Well, just with the naming rights, I think as the uh, Los Angeles resident, I lived here for like a decade and I'm, I was raised in Orange County. So I do have, I had feelings when I saw that. Yeah. And it's funny that you like mention it. And I, I know this is dumb because I've shopped at Staples, but for some reason I never actually connected Staples to the corporate branding. Like this was the first time that I actually went like, oh, wait, that was a corporate branding the whole time. But I think it's because it's been named Staples for as long as I can remember. I was a child when it was named that. So I just didn't connect it. And so for me, it was the dot com. It was like we're going from the Staples Center, which is like an iconic place. Everyone knows what it is to like a dot com thing I've never even heard of. What the hell? Like I had that angry reaction to it. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why, but it wasn't connected to the crypto part. Yeah. It was connected to the dot com part. So this is purely generational. This is uh, this is a uh, maybe n- nostalgia. Yeah. 
Uh, although, yeah. by the way, I will point out that naming rights have gone in in both directions, at least in terms of of uh, of some people. The new uh, Seattle Kraken Stadium in Seattle, Washington, is named the Climate Pledge Arena. So, like, Ew. there is there are certainly. You know that that is probably more of a uh, a, a political statement to say that uh, there is a climate pledge to pledge to make the climate better. But 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 crypto.com. So, uh, Heaton, are you fired up about crypto? Uh, well, first of all, I, I'm fired up about stadium subsidies. So let me rant about that for a moment. <laughs> uh, okay, I I don't know every stadium in America, but pretty much every stadium in America has been publicly financed through our money, so that we yeah. could give it to a bunch of billionaires who already have money because they've bought off all those politicians. So if the Staples Center is one of those things, it should be burned to the ground and everybody that financed it in a public level should be kicked out of office and arrested. It is absolute crony capitalism. It is sidewalk socialism. It's command economy bullshit. It's people taking your money and throwing it at rich people. And I hate it. So that's okay, the thing that pause, pisses me pause off. Pause right here. Cause now I need to go to the LA, the LA native, uh, <laughs> By and large, I think those arguments are all well-founded and, and certainly- And what they're trying to do, they're, they're trying to distract you with this culture war nonsense. So they can keep taking your money. Okay. That's what they're doing. Also, it is the easiest argument ever to get a bunch of nerds who don't care about sports <laughs> to uh, be angry about the fact that stadiums get built all with right, their money. Bring down the ballet too, if it's publicly financed. <laughs> but, but one of the things that, that nine times out of 10, I agree with you on, on these things. Uh, mm. L.A. and specifically the Staples Center is something that is one of the the times where downtown L.A. was long and still is a, you know, work in progress in terms of anything <laughs> happening there that is, you know, can attract people. But the Staples Center oh, was at not the time. Gorgeous scenery and, and ample parking no, and low I mean, costs of it living. Is, it is steps away from Skid Row. Like, like it is huh. it is a, 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 a terrible like, you know, a, a, a Bosnia transported to yes. uh, Southern California uh, element, but the Staples Center and then L.A. Live that was built around it and the convention center down the street became something that was a bit of a foothold where there was some kind of traffic and, and energy in, in downtown Los Angeles. Am I overstating that, Jen? No, not at all. That's the only reason I go there is to go to the Staples Center. I went to a podcast conference there a couple of years ago. But like in my whole life, the only other time I've gone to downtown LA has been for the Staples Center. And so, so it was a really big deal. Are now patronized. The the surrounding area around it has some kind of foot traffic that isn't just for fentanyl. I think that if you hadn't <laughs> built a a uh, now again, I don't know the the background on this. Maybe. Maybe the Staples Center was paid for by private investors. Oh, it, it almost assuredly was not. Yes, I, I would be no, very no, surprised. No, stadium, no stadiums are. The, the only thing that I would say is that while the vast majority of these stadiums that are all, I mean, the reason why they're all publicly financed is because the leagues won't allow a stadium to be built privately. Oh my it is God. very rarely that they do it. Uh, the, the Wait, league, the leagues themselves are? are they, they police, the owners police themselves. Okay, well, they're anti-American, crony capitalist, sidewalk socialist <laughs> morons, and you should boycott them for being against all of the values of our country. Now, Okay, I have to pause here. Go. So one of the things about the Staples Center is that it was hosting two teams. It was hosting the Lakers and the Clippers. Yeah. The Clippers, well, three, new three stadium. Oh, yeah. I forgot that we have a hockey team because I don't give a single shit. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. There are three. Um, but the Clippers are getting their own stadium. They just broke ground over by SoFi Stadium, yeah. which is that $5 billion stadium that we just built for the Rams and the Chargers. 
And what I'm seeing in Inglewood, which is another area that was like pretty hood, like I've never been all that afraid to go into Inglewood, but like it doesn't have the best reputation. It is, it is, Weird. it is uh, uh, following in the tradition of uh, uh, if it were if it was mentioned often in '90s rap songs, it is now yes. a real estate hotbed. Like so, so, so it's yes. uh, Bedford Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, uh, in, in notorious B.I.G. songs, uh, uh, Inglewood, which was a staple of uh, you know rap, uh, West Coast rap. Now all of a sudden has this this the gigantic thing. The Wu Tang Clan has not made Staten Island quite the hotbed that that they might have uh, initially uh, wanted to. But but yeah, go ahead. But yeah, so here in Southern California, that's exactly what's happening. We're seeing hotels popping up. There's a Costco there that I didn't even know about, but it's right next to SoFi Stadium. And what I'm excited about is that this area is walking distance. It's a long walk. It takes about an hour and a half, but it's walking distance from LAX. And what we're seeing being built right now, in part because of the Olympics and the new stadiums, is we're finally getting a public transportation system that's going to take you somewhere and it's going to connect to the airport. And so... We're seeing not, this not, 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 not just a nest for predators. Well, I mean, I don't know if you know this about public transportation in Southern California, but our we do have a metro system yes. that will get you to about three or four miles from the airport. And then there's like a weird shuttle or something. So no one takes it. No tourists take it. Like it's super complicated. And, and, and I'm let, a big let me, let me, proponent. Let me, let me make clear that when I said a nest for predators, what I meant were literal predators from the movie Predator 2 and not sex pests, <laughs> which uh, the LA, the LA public transit is features heavily uh, so in Predator I, 2. I'm happy to <laughs> continue <laughs> arguing with you guys for the next hour about this and about invoke predators? the scene and the unseen and bring up Bastiat and all these things. Like, do you want me to do this or should, do you no. want me to to digress go, go, and go, go into go, crypto. Go. No, no, no. Go. Rail, rail, rail. Okay. All right. All right. So, uh, all right. Uh, Briney, public inf- uh, public uh, uh, transit, good investment of, of public tax dollars. That's a, a, a bread and butter essential service of government, particularly at a municipal level. Um, the money that's being diverted to building stadiums and other similar handouts of quote unquote economic development to billionaires takes money away from that. So I think that it is a situation of the seen and the unseen where you build a big thing in the middle of town and go, look at this thing we built. But if you hadn't built that, that money would have gone elsewhere. Uh, for example, in, in Los Angeles, I can think of lots of things that would the money would be better spent on than putting in a stadium. I don't know, like the 80,000 homeless people that are there. I'd rather put the money towards that. So I, I, I think that these are examples where it looks really good for the politicians doing it because it creates the illusion of making jobs. But really what it's doing is just shuffling and reorganizing them. The actual net gain is not good. Uh, the 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 data on on stadiums is is overwhelmingly against them being any type of good economic investment. I mean, literally every economist, left, right, center, front, under, over, agrees that stadium subsidies wind up being a net loss to taxpayers. They just end up creating this illusion of having a bunch of stuff there, but the stuff would have gone elsewhere and in bigger amounts without it. So I will I will say. They should uh, demand all the money back and pay it to the taxpayers and then fully privatize that thing, which it already is. Again, this isn't a public stadium. It's just been publicly financed on the blockchain. I don't actually disagree with you, but it's just like, I just think there are factors. I think it's a more complicated conversation than that because the stadium was a catalyst for all these things that we need. It is changing a neighborhood and bringing in so much money to this area that wouldn't be there without the stadium. So it's just, I think it's just a more complicated issue. I just, I don't think it's as, I don't know. I'm not 
I'm not super pissed about my taxes going to it now that I'm seeing the effect that it's having. I, I also, on the I also tend to shade this argument because my familiarity with the stadium subsidy argument is that the worst thing that you can do is build a football stadium because a football stadium by and large is only in use. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you actually you end up generating a, a little bit yeah. less than you would have if you built a grocery store. Yeah, it's it's massive. So maybe you're booking gigantic, you know, concerts and you certainly do for the first couple of years. But then it largely slits dormant and there's not a whole lot else that you can do with a football stadium, a midsize basketball or hockey stadium and specifically the Staples Center. It's home to three teams. Eventually it'll be two. Uh, and, you know, so that just means you have more nights out of the week that people are coming and visiting whatever area that you've done it in. The, uh, the, the, the caveats that I have when, when I've looked into to the stadium subsidy thing is that if it is downtown and it is accessible to an area that otherwise could use an anchor of thousands of people coming in on a, you know, multiple times a week basis, it is a help. Uh, or can be that's that's where it can succeed, at least in in uh, some of the lofty economic development promises that all stadiums make. Uh, baseball stadiums are are another example of where like you play as a baseball team, something like 80 home games. So like there's a lot of just reasons to come down to the stadium. Like I am I am for, uh, uh, you know, as as an Oakland and now departed Oakland resident. Uh, I am for them building that stadium down in Jack London Square because I think Jack London Square is a beautiful area. It deserves a reason why a, thousands of people would show up to see a lot of the stuff around it. And right now, it does not have that. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and digress so we can get to the things that you told us to talk about. No, I no, apologize. No, we, can go, we can go wherever we want. However, I want the record to show for yeah. people at home, Heaton was in favor of funding public transportation housing for the homeless and not giving money to billionaires. The guy saying don't give money to billionaires was Heaton. Everybody keep that in mind for the rest of this conversation. Okay. Well then Heaton, you're going to love this because I just looked it up. My source is sportingnews.com for what that matters. But SoFi cost $5 billion and it was all private money. Great. Okay. Fantastic. Good for that. Then that one can stand. I'm in favor of that one. <laughs> all the arguments you all made are perfectly valid. Hold on. Hold on. We're not going to get out clean because the guy who built that by himself, Stan Kroenke, is now canceling the deal that he had with the city of St. Louis where he did get private funds and is now making a gigantic mess of that. So he is, he is, he is, yes, he built a gigantic stadium in LA for $5 billion. Although I think, I, I don't know if there was also tax subsidies and everything, which is another thing that winds up happening uh, or like loans from, yeah. from the city. But, uh, uh, and tax, tax breaks when they're targeted are effectively the same thing as a subsidy. So that might basically, happen. yeah. So, uh, uh, there's, there, there's, there's, there's a complicated, for any, you know, good old red blooded American team owners that built their own stadium using their own money. I salute you and I will support your team. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Although if I asked good. you, Iman Shumpert, NBA shooting guard or, uh, uh, UN, Attorney or uh, UN Secretary General, oh, <laughs> would you know the difference? Uh, I think is it still is it still Moon? Is he still the Secretary General of the UN? I'm, I'm outdated. I'm well, he's UN. certainly not playing point guard for the Knicks. <laughs> Maybe not. Wait. Okay. So then, uh, can we can we transition to the next tirade? On uh, actually, I don't have nearly as much of a tirade on crypto, uh, uh, but I but I do have a couple of thoughts on that since that was the sure. initial. Yeah, the yeah, initial yeah, yeah. Crypto. Uh, okay. Let's go. Um, so I listened to uh, there's a British podcast I listened to. 
Uh, it's called Reasons to Be Does Cheerful. Does it have a U in it? Huh? It's no, they, they <laughs> didn't have a U. It's Reasons to Be Cheerful. It's delightful. It's Ed Miliband, and I can't remember the other guy's name, but it's two um, like kind of recent power uh, power broker uh, labor politicians in the UK. Okay. And they had an episode recently on crypto, and everybody on it, including the expert they brought on, was so scared of it. Because uh, it was the, the listing that they're like, with cryptocurrency, if, 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 if it became a huge thing that the, the state would lose its ability to right. dictate the value of money. If we, if we ran out of money, we wouldn't be able to print any, any more of it to devalue it when necessary. And, and, and most of it would be used in the meantime to, to purchase drugs. So if you think that drugs should be illegal, crypto is, is and I went, man, you've just converted me to crypto wholesale. The government <laughs> can't screw people out of the value of their money anymore. And she can buy drugs with it, which I'd also like to cancel that whole war. Great. So I, 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 when crypto came out, I was initially pretty skeptical of it. I think it has a great promise. And, and I think that it's really going to shake things up with states around the globe. Well, it already has had a certain kind of effect to the point where states have staked their own coins because, of course, anybody yeah. can make their and own uh, coin. Like El, El Salvador, I think, just switched to Bitcoin. Yeah, the whole country. Yeah, yeah that's, Isn't that, wild? That, that, is, that is an interesting position. But, but many of them have stood up their own their own coin. Mm -hmm. So like you could buy like, and even cities have, uh, right. uh, New York is flirting with it. I believe Miami already has Jen. Well, the idea that the government is not tracking these crypto transactions is just simply wrong. So I did a, um, an episode on, I called it the safe haven of sanctions evaders, which spoiler alert is the United States of America. Um, and one of the things that I learned is that crypto is actually not that big of a factor because the nature of the blockchain has every mm -hmm. single, you know, transaction publicly recorded. Mm -hmm. So it's actually quite easy for them to figure out who one of these people are. Like you just have to track one wallet and then you can kind of go from there. And the government has really done a good job of figuring out how to do that. It's really not easy for these people to do really shady things in large numbers with crypto. So this whole idea that it's a, you know, amazing thing for the, for the criminals and the drug lords and all that, it's just not the case. Yeah. They're the, using the, the traditional monetary system. Yeah, absolutely. And they're hiding it in tax havens here in the United States, Delaware, one of the Dakotas, like we just have States where like, this is, this is where the big money's coming and it's coming in the, you know, fiat system run through the federal reserve and the world trade organization, all that. So that's one thing about crypto. Um, I think that's all I have right that's now, it. actually. That's all we got for crypto. <laughs> the ads. Are we worried about it violating our climate pledge arena? Because uh, that is that is one of the things no. that is that is uh, oft talked about. Because for those of you who are unaware of how uh, uh, cryptocurrency works, or at least Bitcoin, the way that you acquire a Bitcoin is you direct your computer to solve a tremendously complex math equation mm -hmm. that then unlocks a Bitcoin. So you are mining a Bitcoin and you use this by having your computer run really, really, really fast uh, uh, and, and over a significant period of time that sucks up a lot of electricity. Mm -hmm. The electricity has to come from somewhere, be it coal yeah. or gas or, or anything like that. And so one of the big knocks on crypto and specifically it's glorification uh, uh, by way of the former Staples center is the idea that we are, we are putting even more, of a boot on mother nature's neck. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm skeptical of this claim. And, and I, I say this, uh, I, I am worried about climate change. Uh, I, I think we should have a carbon tax. There's lots of things I would do um, to try and, and mitigate the damage currently happening. 
The reason that I am skeptical of that claim is that I never, ever, ever hear brought up with it in concert the carbon footprint or energy output of the current banking system, because that is a very relevant factor. If we're going to have cryptocurrency displace the existent fiat currency uh, that, that is run by the Fed and the banks, as Jen points out, you really ought to look at what their amount of energy is. Now, I don't know the answer to that, but my guess is it's actually probably bigger because the bloat, the amount of processing, the amount of administration needed for the current system is clearly far more than than Bitcoin, which is much more simple and, and like you're, you're based in the same way that we've we've used technology to automate and uh, get rid of physical people that were literally called computers in World War II with actual yeah. computers. Bitcoin's doing that same thing with the financial industry, right? So I would like to know from people that make this argument what the energy output of the current financial industry is, because that is relevant to that that argument. Well, and the solution to both is simple. If we actually decided as a country that our goal would be to change to a renewable energy grid, like all 50 states, the whole thing, all of this becomes a moot point. So I think that's going to be the first step. It's like if everything is being run by solar, wind, geothermal. And I mean, obviously we can do the things that really have to be run by fossil fuels with a little bit, but like if we actually made that transition and it was solar power that was running the electricity that's going into your house and that's where you're mining the Bitcoin, then we no longer have a problem. The problem is that our grid is run with fossil fuels. That's That would solve all of this. Are we there yet? I mean, I know that your your husband works no. in this in this field of and not not are we there that in terms of making the decision either politically or based on the public will, but uh, my understanding of of a lot of the uh, uh, you know upgrading of our grid, the problem is not catching solar power or wind power. The problem is storing it and 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 the batteries that are needed to do it at the scale that we would need it to to take significant portions of our, our, our fossil fuel dependency, uh, uh, down a peg is, is something that like battery wise is a bottleneck challenge. Well, so the reason that batteries are important right now is that the grid is being upgraded in pieces. We don't have a holistic approach to changing the grid, to make it a smart grid, to manage this in a good way. So what we're doing instead is like when a house goes solar, they basically are like an, an area when my husband puts in one of his utility scale projects, they have to pay to upgrade the grid in just the spots that it connects to. And so you have this piecemeal way of changing the grid. And so that's why you're finding in certain areas, people are being told like you have too much solar in this area. The grid can't handle it. We haven't changed how we do the billing. We haven't incentivized the utilities in any way to really want to change to solar. And so because we haven't decided as a nation that we're going to do all of this at the same time in a smart way, that's why it's becoming necessary to like in this area, we need to have a battery to store it because we're not doing things that could be done. Like for, ex for example, um, we have a lot of batteries. If we were smart, we would have a lot of battery cars that would be sitting overnight doing nothing. And so we could have those connected to a smart grid where those act as the batteries as we use the the energy at night. And then, you know, when you use your car during the day, that's when the sun's up and you no longer have the problem. Like there's ways if we thought of this on a holistic approach as a country, again, if we really decided that this was our goal politically and acted towards it, you wouldn't have to have big giant batteries to make this work. There are solutions that exist, but you need the political will to actually get the people in there to like 
plan it all out I, I, and what, do what, it for what the you whole are describing country. Sounds like more than political will. <laughs> it sounds like like kind of a, a, a top down reengineering of society. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But that's what's possible, and that's what's that's what we could do on the federal level. But right now, we're still at the point where. You know, we have one party completely devoted to keeping fossil fuels. The Republicans aren't even pretending that they're on board with this. And half the Democrats are pretending. We have one and a half parties completely devoted to fossil fuels. Yeah. yeah. So it's like we're so far away from doing that. And so that's why the focus right now is so much on batteries, because they're trying to do it in this piecemeal way. But it's just not the smart way. Well, I, I, can I give my, my quick yeah, 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 yeah. plan to save the world? Please. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, central planning works well at all. I, I, I think that. Um, the the sheer amount of aggregate decisions that have to be made, coupled with the actors doing it over you know 300 million people, et cetera, makes it incredibly, incredibly difficult to where um, our current administration or anybody apt to be in it is certainly not up to the challenge. But I don't really think that most people anywhere are. That's why I prefer systems that have broad incentives that allow everybody to act aggregately rather than having a, a central power trying to plan everything from the top down. So it seems to me that the best thing we could do right now would be to have a carbon tax because then you're incentivizing everybody to pay for more carbon because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get off carbon, right? You make carbon tax high or you, you, you adjust it to the point where it's an actual incentive. Then people start getting off of things that produce carbon like, like fossil fuel and they get onto things like solar power. They get on or, or other things. I don't know. Maybe if you can come up with some kind of clean, clean other solution, great, because I don't think the government's really good at innovating. I think uh, so. I, I don't want the government trying to pick winners and losers there. The thing that I would also couple that with that we do have the technology for is nuclear power. That is something that's available right now. Uh, if we if we were to put in nuclear power plants, that could do all of the energy output for America, including cars. And so I think we we could get there. And so for me, carbon tax plus figuring out a way to really embrace nuclear power would be the smart move. Well, nuclear power is another thing that keeps us like we have two ways we can go, right, is to have this centrally planned way. And honestly, big nuclear power plants is really more in that direction. Mm -hmm. We could also go the complete opposite direction where each of us are powering things more individually. So we're using less of that system. So like, for instance, we could have microgrids. So we're not connected to these giant monopoly utilities. We could also work a lot harder, harder towards getting individual things to power themselves. So like, for instance, in Hawaii, I know that solar water heaters are required, Yeah, you know? So it's like you have this one thing in your house that is no longer being powered by the utility. It's being powered by itself. And there's a lot of things that we can, can do that with if there was a will. So we actually have the way to decentralize this completely if we want to, but then we have these utilities that are major lobbyists and they want us to be stuck on this system where we're reliant on them and their decisions. So there are different ways we can do that. And I actually prefer the microgrid way, even though it kind of puts my husband out of business, because I just feel like that doesn't require so much from Washington, but it would require taking these utilities on. And that's going to be really hard to do in this climate. Well, it will Political be, climate. but I think what well, yeah, you we, are we should acknowledge to, that J Jen and me and whatever our plans are, everything's very hard to do in this climate. There's, there's literally nothing yeah. like, like everybody in America could be like, Hey, this thing's stupid. And Washington's not going to do it. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why to me, uh, uh, America is a country of people that don't want to be told nothing. <laughs> like, like you kind of want to just do whatever the hell you want. And, and, uh, that is both our, our our strength and our weakness, but that is just a part of the American character, and we should we should understand that when we craft any solution. 
the way that you get people to switch off of uh, switch off of, of, of fossil fuels to me is by making power cheaper. If you can tell me, oh, I have to pay less out of my out of my 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 allotted budget for the things that I want to do and I can do it better and cheaper with a, a green solution, then we will do it. If we are told to do it, I mean, boy, there the, I, I would like to have a contest for listeners. Find the smallest possible thing that Americans have been asked to do that we're like, no on general principle. <laughs> you like, with, when we switched light bulbs like eight years ago and they were like, everybody was like, I will die on this yeah, hill. Yeah, exactly. Somebody's going <laughs> to die on the light bulb hill. And, and also, I love yellow also lights. <laughs> another example of government being bad at innovation. They, the, the, uh, the government passed a law that we had to get rid of all the incandescent lights and switch over to fluorescent lights. And five years later, the private sector produced LED lights, which is what everything is anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because my husband, utility scale solar engineer, he's the most cynical person that I know. And he actually gets a lot of hope because of the market right now, because solar just is oh, it's great. cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I, I'm so putting what, a solar panel on my scamp and I like, I'm, I'm amazed at like for a hundred dollars, I think it was like $120. I can get a hundred Watts out of it. That's crazy. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, you had to get like a house size solar panel to, to, you know, get a flashlight to work and, and it, they're becoming way better and much cheaper. Oh yeah. And like after hurricane Maria took out the power grid in um, Puerto Rico, I went to Puerto Rico six months after that happened to see what was up for myself. And what I found when I went to the hardest hit places is like Elon Musk of all people invented these solar power generators and everybody had them. They're like lifesavers there. And so everybody wanted them. Like that's how they did it. And so when I was talking to the people in Puerto Rico, like they saw a lot of potential there of being like, okay, this grid is garbage and they really want to replace it with more fossil fuel infrastructure and these lines that were all, I mean, honestly, they were all like knocked over and they were just restringing them on the same poles. Like it was a really bad situation. They're like, we don't want to be dependent on this anymore. And so communities were getting together and these solar power generators were key to that. And so I'm looking just like your scamp, those generators, there are ways, like I said, for us to do this locally and the utilities really can't do much about it. So my husband gets hope from on the utility scale that these eventually the economics are going to work out that they're just going to go solar anyway. And what I'm finding fascinating is that the infrastructure bill is propping up old nuclear power plants. Um, I told you this yesterday, Andrew, but there's $6 billion in that new law that's going to just go towards subsidizing that industry to keep power plants that are no longer profitable up and running. Um, We're seeing the same things with offshore drilling. Our tax money is paying these companies that are spilling oil off our coast down here in Southern California and federal waters. We are paying these companies to drill more wells because they don't want to because it's unprofitable. So that's something that I'm really angry about because the economics, yeah. the whole free market thing is saying we're over this. And yet these people that are paid off by fossil fuels, they are keeping and to nuclear. And, and those, nuclear those is a subsidies huge lobby. should be knocked out because they're warping that exactly. market. And on top of that, Jen, I think you've, I, I really think you've actually come up on a brilliant way to sell solar panels to middle America from which I am sprung. Like if I go talk to my, my family about, uh, you know, I'm really worried if the carbon emissions get to X percent, we're going to have a 0.1 uh, increase and, uh, you know, uh, Brighton could flood. Uh, the, the way to approach mm-hmm. them is to go, you think the grid will ever go down? Shit. Yeah. Have you ever watched the twilight zone when the power goes off? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to be ready for that? You should get a solar panel. 
Uh, okay. Yeah. Like if, if you do it as like rugged individualism and prepared for the that, zombie apocalypse, that's what Americans no one's come on board. do stuff because you tell them to do it. You yeah. have you have to appeal to the individual uh, characteristics. So, uh, uh, all right, uh, let, let, let's switch topics here uh, because there is a a big topic that has dominated politics over the last few weeks. The uh, federal government uh, released figures saying that a six point two percent year over year increase in inflation is what they are seeing, something that is the largest since the early 80s. Obviously, uh, inflation is uh, politically, from my sphere, kind of known as a presidency killer. Uh, uh, it it <laughs> has a, a fairly undefeated track record when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, a, a sustained periods of inflation and political uh, career. So it is taken very seriously. But how seriously by the political triad Heaton. Uh, I don't know what the, the end I, I defer to you in terms of what the political ramifications of it will be. What, what I've been trying to figure out on my end is what is causing the inflation. That's what yeah. I'm really interested in from what I can tell. And I will preface this despite the fact that I go on frequent uncle tirades of economics on this program. <laughs> I am not a proper economist. I'm certainly not trained in monetary theory. And so this is something Although you are wearing the sweater. Of I one. am. I am wearing an you are Argyle wearing sweater. An economist <laughs> uniform. I very much look like a prolonged virginal economist <laughs> in, in my, my current outfit. Uh, it, it seems to me based on my, um, uh, uh, amateur e economist bearings that there's there's two ways that inflation happens. It either yeah. happens through monetary inflation, where the the currency is expanded, we print more money, therefore the individual value of every dollar declines. Right, yep. that's one form of of inflation. The other inflation is just where stuff costs more. There's there there uh, a warehouse gets knocked out, so there's half as much goods, so the the price of the other goods increases. Or uh, in our case, the supply chain is kinked up. And that makes things happen. Uh, it could be that monetary inflation is going on. I'll say on my end, I don't understand why we haven't had more inflation. The only thing I can come up with, given the amount of money we've printed the last 10 years, is I, I think that it must simply be that the economy keeps growing faster than the monetary yes. supply, which is the only reason we're able to do this. Uh, that said, obligatory tirade, I think monetary inflation is, is heinous. Um, it's probably the single greatest way to screw people over ever invented by the ruling class in terms of the government being able to tax you without having to even tell you about it because they're literally making your money worth less so that whatever savings you have are depleted. And it really screws over people at the bottom of the economic pyramid because if I've hired you to work for $10 an hour and inflation happens, I'm actually paying you less at the end of the year than I hired you on. But I'm going to have all the benefits because I'm at the top. So monetary inflation is a thing. I think that there that might have happened over the last year because of the amount of money we pumped into the economy through everything. I think well, if well cer certainly if if your point of we have not felt it because the economy has continued to expand faster, yeah. the two years where we essentially turn the economy off so we right. can turn it back well, on and, again. But even then, might, I, I might think be we, a, a catch up period. I think we did feel it, but it didn't it didn't manifest in a in a uh, a bread and butter kind of way. Like you remember about this time last year where we're debating, I guess a little bit more than a year ago, we're, we're debating, you know, how, like, should we be sending out these $1,200 checks? How long should unemployment yeah. benefits work for? And meanwhile, the economy or the, uh, the stock market was like rising. And yeah. I'm like, I, I think everybody was plugging money into the stock market and that that basically became a bubble and that, that, that is where the inflation went. But all of that said, that's fairly speculative on my point. I think the thing that's demonstrable in terms of inflation is the supply chain got basically shut down and alternated and brought back um, prior to COVID. The, the economy or the, the global economy is chugging away. 
COVID happens and the American economy just stops the service sector. It all stops yeah. and everybody immediately shoots up in terms of goods that they're purchasing. And now it's normalizing and the supply chain is having a difficult time. It, it'll it'll fix it, but it's, it's having to readjust. And so the key figure that I saw was that uh, a, two years ago to transport a, a freight ship from China to San Francisco cost $2,000 to make that, that trek. It currently costs $20,000 to make that trek. Yeah. So it seems to me that that is probably the main culprit in what we're seeing, which is that the prices of goods and service, or the prices of goods specifically are increasing. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's not only the ships, it's also the containers, it's also the shipping, it's also the, the trucking industry, and even as we had uh, uh, our, our, our supply chain expert on here a few weeks ago, it's the getting was the, it Jim? Was it Big Jim? It was Big Jim. Nice shout uh, out to Big Jim. It was uh, uh, it's getting the containers back to the shipyards. So it's like the the containers get on the you know whenever you get stuck at, at a at a longer than usual uh, uh, train you know crossing or something like that. You see all those all those boxes normally. It's like, oh, okay, who cares? Whatever. But now that they're in such short supply, there is a problem with them even getting back there. Jen, inflation. So, so as the resident Southern Californian here, um, I've been here since September, right? Yep. Um, so I, I've been here since the oil spill. And one of the things that caused it is that we know that a cargo ship, we don't know exactly when, but one of those cargo ships off of, that's been waiting for a slot in the port of Los Angeles or the um, port of Long Beach, they're just idling out there in places that they're not supposed to be because there's such a backlog. In fact, as I'm speaking to you, I checked about a week ago, there's a hundred ships out yeah. there. You go to for a run in Long Beach, you can see them. They're everywhere. And one of their anchors hit this pipeline and that's what spilled oil all over Orange County. I'm pissed about it. So I've been following this really closely. And I think this is also a symptom of the fact that we have stopped enforcing antitrust laws in this country because we have these monopoly shipping companies. There is no other place to turn to. And they love that they've jacked up the prices from 2000 to 20,000. And so what we're finding in the ports here is that they're emptying out the shipping containers and these monopoly companies, they're just stacking up the empty containers. One of the reasons that we can't unload these ships that are off the coast is they're just stacking them up. And they're not moving them back to the other places. No one is forcing them to do so. And in the meantime, they're raking in pro um, profits. And so just this whole dynamic that there's no one else that we can turn to, and they are loving the amount of money that they're making, that is gumming up the works. And the repercussions are that we have these products that are sitting off the coast. So things that used to take you know, two days to get, their, to, get to where they need to go are now taking 30 days. Yeah. And so people can't get the supply that they want. So they have to raise the prices because like, how else do you keep your business open? If you can sell less, you have to raise the prices. And so I think a lot of this right now is the supply chain and no one seems to be wanting in this administration to step in and tell these private businesses, like you have to move these, there will be fines if you don't like, they're just, I don't see mayor Pete who was not qualified to be the secretary of transportation doing anything, especially because he's been on maternity leave this whole time. So or paternity leave. So um, I just see, I see again, a lack of government willing to intervene in the private sector and what's going on at our ports here. I can think of a, is a insane. great way to both piss off these shipping monopolies and make things cheaper for consumers. May I, may I please go ahead. Please. Get rid of the Jones act. The Jones Act yeah. is a culprit in this. Um, so for anybody unfamiliar with this, 
the, the Jones Act is a protectionist law put in place in, I think, World War I, where I, I won't get into the, whole, the full background on it, but the, the effect of it is that you cannot have foreign cabotage within American maritime waters. Cabotage, I know it sounds like a vegetable. What it means is um, <laughs> goods that are transported in between ports. So under American law right now, a ship can go from China to the port of Los Angeles. That same Chinese ship cannot go from the port of Los Angeles to Hawaii or the port of Los Angeles to Vancouver or anywhere, I guess not Vancouver, to, to Vancouver, so, Washington. So, so from Long Beach to the port of Oakland, let, let's say, right. for example, you, two so, major West uh, Coast and, shipping And that makes ports. shipping more expensive. It makes yeah. shipping much more expensive for Hawaii and Puerto Rico. If you wanted to do um, something that would overnight would make goods and services cheaper in Puerto Rico, which could use it, and Hawaii, which I assume also could use it, get rid of the Jones Act. And it, it in effect, is restricting the amount of operators that are working in this field, which, to Jen's point, allows for monopolies to happen. So if you were to get rid of that to where somebody could go, well, if you guys aren't going to ship it, we'll ship it. We'll come over from uh, from Indonesia and do it. It would it would allow that that blockage to stop, and it would allow the private actors to take advantage of an artificially restricted market. Now, I will say that shipping lines are not the only way that you can get goods out of China. And I think that there's a whole nother conversation that we can have about our dependence on China for all of our manufacturing, which is a, a root cause of uh, of, you know, why when our supply chain breaks because of a global pandemic, uh, it, it becomes a problem. You can do air shipping. The difference is that you even though the price is higher for uh, a sea freight, it is still cheaper than getting it out through other means. The big problem that we don't know the answer to is much in the same way that everybody in the year that we had lockdown advanced about five years forward in terms of technology. Now, all of a sudden, everybody knows how to use Zoom. Right. Before trying to get somebody on Zoom yeah. was a pain in the ass. Now it is second nature to everybody of all ages. We don't know how much permanently we have changed our buying habits. We don't know how much permanently we have changed the economics on how we consume specifically. I, I ordered mouthwash on Amazon today because I kept meaning to go to the pharmacy and was like, it's been two weeks. I haven't gone to the, I'm just going to order it on Amazon. Because the prices that we look at are largely based on the idea of, okay, this needs to get to a certain warehouse. That warehouse needs to put it into a, a, uh, a, a display. It's going to be sold. You have to factor in rent. You have to factor in, you know, the, the, the workers that do it. Online shopping, I think conservatively probably advanced at the same speed that everybody's proficiency on Slack, Zoom and Animal Crossing did, which is to say that everybody got way more involved and expert at it. And, and I don't know if that goes back. Much in the same way, you're not going to unlearn how to use Zoom. People might want to use it less. People might want to use Slack less. I don't think that we're ever going to unlearn some of those things. And if that's the case, then the entire economics on our on our on our shipping is is different. Like I, I think that a lot of these problems that we're seeing right now, people kind of assume are transitory in that we are going to rebalance back. And I don't I don't know that that's a given. I mean, this is anecdotal, but I think you're onto something because I know that my consumption habits have completely changed. And most people I know are not buying as much, um, not going out as much, not drinking as much. Like, it's just kind of like when you shut down the world, I realized how much spent, how much I was spending on crap and things yeah. that wasn't good for me. And I just kind of 
stopped. And I think part of the the great resignation was a lot of people being like, wait, I'm working really hard to buy a bunch of crap I don't even want. What if I worked less and bought less? And that's how I can make my financials work. There's also a lot of women that I know that still don't have childcare. And so they're not going back into the office. It's now been a year and a half. And they're like, you know what? We're doing just fine on one income. If we keep our spending levels where it's at, at this lower level, I don't have to go back to work right away. And so could that be raising the prices? Because if you're a business and you have fewer customers, how are you going to make ends meet? You have to jack up your prices because there's fewer people in buying a smaller labor pool, which will also probably mm-hmm. increase prices. Yeah, we had we had yeah. a guest on a few weeks ago that made the argument that a lot of the trends of women staying home uh, because of the rising cost of childcare is a trend that we saw before the pandemic. And, and the pandemic just exacerbated it that that. Now, I mean, the, the idea of the, 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 the rise, the, 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 the uh, big comeback of the stay at home mom, uh, don't tell the alt right that prices are going <laughs> up because of women do not mention this. Uh, all right. So anybody in the all right, dude, just, uh, do, you know, please fast forward. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, any other inflationary thoughts? No. Yeah. All right. I, I do think it's it, it is it is a persistent problem, and and uh, I, I will say this uh, to your point about Mayor Pete uh, or Secretary Pete, um, uh, Jen. I have I have been consistently very frustrated with the with the Biden cabinet being just like out and out hacks. Like if I if my frustration <laughs> with the the Trump administration was that. Everybody seemed like they were uh, uh, the Hudsucker proxy, like they were just thrust <laughs> into this thing that they had no idea what to do. And maybe some of them had good ideas and maybe one of them would invent the hula hoop. But by and large, they were totally like out of their depth. The, the Biden administration has put in straight political people that like when we're talking about this kind of stuff and Mayor Pete, who has a very large profile and may or may not be gearing up for a 2024 run, like is, is on television and he doesn't even give me, just give me 10 minutes on the supply chain before you start pitching the build back better bill. Like whether or not I agree with it or I like it, can you please just give me 10 minutes of competence would like he, as, as Secretary of Transportation, is going to be solved would he by this be legislation? the point man on the supply chain? Would he be the adult yes. that's supposed to? Oh, okay. Interesting. He's, the, he's the transportation <laughs> secretary. Interesting. All right. Yeah, no, and I, stuff I think is he, not being transported. He, need, yes, he needs to be Pete. making bumper stickers. That's his well, top Well, and it's job. the same thing with like the rising gas prices. They have Jennifer Granholm out there. And and Jennifer Granholm is like, like oh, well, these rising gas prices. She's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, there's a cartel and it's called OPEC. Like, that's why the gas prices are rising. That's yeah, interesting because like, I like, don't hey, think look, we get the majority of our oil from them and have not for about 15 years well, but now. But also it's like, look, I know that OPEC's a thing. Is this the first time you're hearing about it? <laughs> like, do you not have? Yes, that, and. That, I, yes, I, and this. Like, like, where are we going from here? When Biden did well, a- Well, like, give me a second because this has been pissing me off. It was only a couple years ago that I, it was, I think it was in the tax bill or sometime around, it was in the Trump administration, but we start, no, Obama. It doesn't fucking matter. Um, very recently, we- allowed our fossil fuels to start being exported Yeah. until very recently. If it was drilled here, it had to stay here. So now we're doing all this drilling and, you know, damaging our environment and all of this. And they're shipping our oils into the global market. And so this whole idea that we should drill more here and it's for our energy independence. If anyone was serious about that argument, they would be demanding that we bring that export ban back. And no one is. Yeah. 
which tells you exactly how cynical everything they're saying is. Like that is the solution to this if you actually want energy independence is to not be dependent on OPEC. And no one is suggesting it. And it's making me insane. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, before we go to our final topic here, the, the, the Build Back Better bill uh, indeed was passed in the House on when we were recording this on Friday. Uh, it's largely meaningless because it's going to get ripped to shred in, in, in the Senate. So I have no idea why anybody's even talking about it or celebrating it. All right. Uh, final topic. Um, can I can I I have an idea about what's happening. I feel like Build Back Better is the look over here bill. They're going to obsess over this bill that's not going to become long be- law before the end of the year. Well, meanwhile, they're authorizing all our wars. They're going to be funding our entire government. Mm. They just passed a, a bill into law that is authorizing more economic war against Nicaragua that no one knows about. They're passing all kinds of stuff into law and we're not paying attention while we're all arguing about Build Back Better, which by the time it becomes law. If it becomes law, Justin, and I have a bet. I bet him a beer that it's not becoming, oh, it's law, becoming law at all. Law. It's becoming law. Okay. Well, no, I'll enjoy thing, that beer. Thing that's called build back better will become law, whether or not anybody <laughs> likes it or it has any kind of, uh, uh, they're doing it. The, 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 the Northeastern uh, Democrats are doing it for salt, the salt, uh, law, which basically allows them to deduct yeah. their state and local taxes. It's California Democrats and and uh, uh, New Jersey and New York. Trump, Trump overturned that or got he rid of that, right? During, that, his, during, not been his, during his tax, uh, his tax cuts, they took away the salt caps, right. which were like an F you to blue states, basically. And yeah. uh, now they want those back. And that's where Build Back Better is where they're going to get it. Uh, it's a tax cut for the rich. Like yeah. Build yeah. Back Better might be renaming a post office. Like maybe it'll be in name only, but like. Yeah, nothing real. Brian, you getting into that, like this is this is what they're doing. That's that is peak Brian. Like that is that is like <laughs> that is like, like the opening strains of Stairway to Heaven. Like like that is that yeah. is your that is your power pitch. Like, I like I like this that is a, what they're doing in secret. I, I love it. About the time I talk her out and I'm like, ah, I've kind of I've my sugar rush is concluded is when Brian starts getting pissed off and she yeah. takes up the slack, <laughs> comes in. Hot. I start talking really fast and you see my hands go crazy. Yeah. Well, I got real mad. Well, let's talk about something that is certainly is, uh, uh, you know, one that, that, that keeps our, our blood pressure calm and that is gerrymandering redistricting oh as they call it. Uh, I initially said, uh, uh, to our little group chat when we were setting up this recording that I was kind of surprised that I had to hunt like most of the stuff that I have done. And while I'm trying to cover redistricting is largely on the local level, it's local television, uh, it's local newspapers, but for as much as we talk about gerrymandering, as much as we talk about, uh, uh, you know, redistricting throughout the 10 year period after somebody does about it, it does anything about it. This is the time when you should be mad, if you're ever mad about gerrymandering ever mm-hmm. now, there's one time every 10 years that you should be focused on it. It's right now. And I am very surprised that nationally we have not gotten more, uh, more of a conversation about this. Great. Well, let's, well, let's jump in. Cause it's morally heinous and we ought to be figuring out ways to stop it. But there's a bipartisan benefit to it for the incumbents. Yep. So like Texas is being gerrymandered by the Republicans. Illinois has been gerrymandered by the by the Democrats, like they're benefiting from it. And the Democrats, like this is another example of them not really, they're pretending that they're against gerrymandering because it was in HR one and S one that it was going to be national law that these districts had to be drawn by an independent commission. And the person that's like the tiebreaker on that had to be an independent person, not a member of either party. Like I actually really like that provision. 
but they have passed <laughs> those bills and then done nothing. Yeah. Like it's not like it's in a conference committee. It's not like they're breaking it up and just doing that because that would be extremely possible or um, popular. Yeah. In the if, United if States, they were to like do a that national actually could get done. Law and that was it. That would be wildly popular. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so they want it tied with like their campaign finance yeah. system, which I considered right. really stupid because that's something that can be argued against. Like these giant packages gives people something to hate, and that way they can pretend to support these things, but not actually act on them. So. I'm really angry at the Democrats for that, that they really are fighting for that tax cut for mainly the wealthy. I think it's the top 10% of people on the coasts that would benefit from that salt deduction. While the meantime, they're letting the For the People Act just kind of die for the second Congress in a row. So the solutions are there. But once again, we have these dinosaurs who have been in Congress since I was a child We have not fired them yet. In fact, they've all failed up. Like I did an episode on the Patriot Act, you guys. 12.5% of the current Congress were people that voted for the Patriot Act back in 2001. The same people. And they've all failed up and they're all running Congress. So that's why it feels like for 20 years, it's been the same monsters making our laws because it literally is. So until we change these people to people that haven't benefited from this system and kept their jobs for 20 years, despite the fact that we hate them, they're the ones that have benefited from the gerrymandering and until we fire them, I don't think it's going to change on the federal level. And, and here, here is what's happening in Texas. Here's what uh, Texas and North Carolina specifically are the most aggressive ones for the Republicans and Illinois is the most aggressive one right. for the Democrats. There's, there's a district in Illinois where if you, if you open both doors of your car while you're on the highway, you're in three districts simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there are some wow. really ridiculous. There are some very silly drawings yeah. uh, in, yeah. in, in some of the modern redistricting things. Although I will point out that not all of them are finalized, but by the way, they will be. Um, in general, I tend to be a bit of a contrarian with, with, with gerrymandering in that I do think there is an element of, you know, a man plans and God laughs with drawing districts that you believe are safe. Things change. People move, uh, especially when you're doing hairline districts, they can get turned over, uh, uh, you know, within a 10 year period of political migration. That being said, the point of what they are doing are creating and let's take politics out of it or a, a, a partisanship out of it. Rather, just the political uh, strategy here is making safe districts. Less competitive yes. districts. You you are making districts where people get, and this happens the uh, uh, you know in in the House of Representatives. That's where it's it, it's affected. You are creating more AOCs. You are creating yes. more Marjorie Taylor Greens. You're creating more Paul Gozers of people that can do whatever the hell they want, right. and they will never the, ever ever get voted out. They will yeah. they will just uh, sleepwalk to uh, a thirty point victories. Yeah. Uh, every two years, the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party don't want competitive elections. That is not what they want. They want to have these ossified strongholds where they, in perpetuity, get to pick the person that's in there. So you're absolutely right about that. I think I think Jen, you made great points about that. I think the 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 gerrymandered system we have is a tool of the duopoly. Both parties have a rich history of doing this. They're actively doing it in the states. I think the Republicans are doing it more cleverly at the moment. 
but both parties no, no, no. The do only it whenever they get the away with it. The difference between when, when Democrats get mad about gerrymandering is just that they don't win enough governor's mansions and they don't win enough state <laughs> yeah. houses. So the reason why they're always like, oh, this is so, oh, the Republicans, Republicans do it more than Democrats. Yeah, they get elected to yeah. more executive offices and state legislatures. Well, that's because they decided to make it their strategy in 2010. That's what the whole Tea Party wave was about, was to win all the state legislatures in order to gerrymander the maps. It was called Project Red Map. It was a whole thing. So they were really coordinated about it. And the Democrats were like, oh, we've never yeah, thought they, to they, do they that. Had a, they had so they're way behind. That went from state legislator to state legislature with incredible data to, to on a granular level, go, this neighborhood over here is more likely to vote moderate Democrat. This neighborhood over here is more likely to vote Republican. And, and to your point, Absolutely. These these create a lot of a lot of the intense partisanship we're getting right now is because of exactly this. If I am running for office in a district that is 70 percent Republican and 30 percent Democrat, I have no electoral incentive ever to reach out to the Democrats in my district. I do not effectively represent them. I represent the party base that put yeah. me in power. Now, if you if you're in a, a purple district, like incidentally, the guy I worked for in Congress before he got primaried out by a bunch of goddamn Republicans, you have an incentive. <laughs> to reach out to everyone in your district because you're actually representing them. But this is, this is my thing. You are only the, like you're, 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 whenever you make these really safe districts, right? Your challenge is not now the other party. It's the fringes of your own party. That if you have a mm -hmm. safe, yes. a safe blue district, very much so you are now, you, you are now have to fear for the primary of the super progressive, a super yes. progressive that probably doesn't represent many parts of your state now can play in this small district. The way to this, combat that, that would piss off the parties and which everybody should be getting on board with is ranked choice voting and top five or top four open primaries that like, like, so open, I think people are familiar with ranked choice voting. I'm not going to relitigate that um, open primaries. Um, Republicans and Democrats, you can still put your premature on what candidate you endorse. You absolutely have that ability. What happens is for everybody in the state that's voting or everybody in the district that's voting, they're just choosing between the top five people that have the, the highest votes, right? So there's just a big primary. We go, there's, there's 20 people running. We're all going to vote. The top five are going to be on the ballot and you get to rank them. Now, the Republicans can pick whoever they want. The Democrats can pick whoever they want. But if you're in a district that has only five Democrats in it, well, everybody in your district now gets to vote amongst those five Democrats, as opposed to currently where the Democrats get to pick the most extreme progressive and all of us moderates and independents have to eat it, or conversely in Republican districts, exact same thing. And what this does, in addition to enfranchising the about half of America now that doesn't view itself as Republican and Democrat and is completely left out of the electoral process since the vast majority of it takes place in the primaries and not in the general election, is it also gives cover to people that want to step out of party line. Because right now, if you are an incumbent, the only thing you would fear in 92% of districts across the country, based on the amount of, of people that actually retain party uh, from election to election, is the people from your base. You're not worried about getting knocked out in a general. You're worried about the screaming people from your base. But if there's a top five open primary where you know as long as you're in the top five, everybody in your state has the ability to vote for you, you can now broaden your governance and your votes to encompass everything in the state as opposed to just the party base. 
I will point out that that concept is also called a jungle primary and has been very recently described as a relic of Jim Crow that disenfranchises people. So uh, you got me, Justin. Yeah. I wanted to figure out how to eliminate black voters by expanding just, options for everyone. Just saying, just saying, just saying. The one thing I will say, and this is this is a divide between me and you, a known divide between me and you, is I don't think that ranked choice voting is the panacea that people often make it out to be. I don't and, think it'd be and, a panacea, but it sure I would, would make me to feel San Francisco better. and Oakland as it's not like those places have moderated as they've had ranked choice voting for the past like 20 years. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's not like that. that it, well, it, but, 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 but hold on there. Like let's, let's take, let's, let's apply ranked choice voting to Oklahoma, a place with which I'm very familiar, right? Sure. Absent ranked choice voting, you get to vote for a Republican who's going to win yeah. or a Democrat who's going to lose when you get to the general election. Very, yes. There are a couple of exceptions. Kendra Horn got to be a Democrat for all of two years before she got knocked out. But basically you're voting for a Republican. That's it. So unless you're a Republican, you get no input because yeah. that's the only time you now if, if you had a jungle primary, you had an open primary, five five ranks or higher, yeah. At this point, probably still going to be Republicans because the majority of the state's Republican, right? But everybody gets to, to vote between the extreme nutball Republican and the more moderate Republican, or the like, uh, he's still pretty right wing, but at least he uses, you know, he, proper English Republican. Like you've you've got options there. So you've the taken Frazier Republican. Yeah, the Frazier there, yeah. I I I am he. Uh, <laughs> and I left. Uh, but but I think in a lot of these places that are super left or super right, they're not going to quit being super left or super right. But what you are going to do is allow all of the people in that district to at least have input on which of the Republicans or which of the Democrats is going to represent them, as opposed to now where they just get an up or down vote on what the parties decide. I, I'm, I'm well familiar with the concept. <laughs> I'm well familiar with the concept. I just I just think it is often uh, uh, just assumed, especially by folks in, in in more of a third party mindset, that it's like, oh, well, that's the problem that we have. The problem that we have is that, that that people don't believe that if they vote for us, it'll be a a good thing. If we just give them the option, Mm. then they'll see, then they'll, then they'll see how, how important uh, our ideas are. And I I just, I don't know. I I think that that it tends to be a little bit of wishful thinking. I I don't think that ranked choice voting would suddenly make the libertarian party a viable, like maybe they'll get the election kind of thing. I do think what you'd see is, for people that are dismissed because they're considered, um, uh, you know, long shots, you're, you're Ron Paul's, you're Bernie Sanders, you're, you're Jill Stein's, you're libertarians. I, I think you would find that they would probably double the amount of, of votes I, I think, that they're I think getting. What you're, They'd what, still lose, but they go from like 4% to 10%. I, I think what, what you're looking at is a situation where you can devalue some of the party primary effect that tends to reward very hardcore uh, uh, elements of yeah. the party it would have and, a moderating and, effect. Yeah. Uh, well, no, now it does not. I mean, like, like Glenn Youngkin, who obviously got a lot of press in Virginia, an undercovered element of that race is that the Virginia Republican Party effectively just handed him their nomination at a convention. They did not have a party because they did not have a, a, a traditional primary because they were afraid that the super Trump uh, uh, aligned candidate would uh, come out ahead or in running that primary, Yunkin would have to move more to the right than where the party believed the candidate ultimately needed to be. He would have to say things that Terry McAuliffe would attack him for. He did not have to say those things. Terry McAuliffe still attacked him for being a Trump Republican that rang more hollow than it would have if he were out there kind of saying stuff. So it's like, I, I think that there, there are some interesting elements of it, but uh, Jen, what do you think? I mean, I voted 
in Oakland uh, the year Libby Schaaf became the mayor. And it was my first time voting with with ranked choice voting. And I just found it really refreshing because I saw 12 names on the ballot. Like I had a choice. And in every other election that I voted for, it was a Democrat or Republican or in the system that's really protected incumbents um, or the duopoly, I should say, in California. Now we have a top two system. So it's like we have a top two primary. And what's happened is when you looked at your choices on the ballot before, sometimes there would be three. And so you could have, you know, Democrat, Republican, independent. And I think it was something like I, I looked it up in one of my episodes, but it was in the low 80s where the ballots had independent options. And ever since we started that top two primary system, it's been consistently 96% of the districts only had Democrats and Republicans on the ballot. So it really solidified the duopoly. Like those really your only choices in California now. And it pisses me off. Jen, did they, so I just really, did, so the, cause I, I don't know how this works. Um, did they, did they used to have like top five and then they restricted it to two? Uh, or, or like what, what happened? Exa- Cause I kind of like, I would still even prefer that over the current system. I, I would prefer that over first past the polls as an independent, because if I'm in a democratic district, I at least get to pick between two Democrats as opposed to, but I, again, I'd, I'd love for it to be five or more. What did it used to be five or more? And now I'm not really sure how it was because there were some times when I looked it up that we would have four people oh, okay. on the ballot. And I'm not really sure how those other parties or the independents got on the ballot. I, I wasn't doing my show at the time, so I'm not sure what it was. Um, I just know that the new system, when I compared the two, it was basically like Democrats and Republicans, like you could choose between those. And sometimes, you know, in San Francisco all the time and in Oakland all the time, you're choosing between two Democrats and then out in the sticks all the time, you're choosing between two Mm. Republicans, but like it's really iced out all the independents. And so it was really refreshing for me as a voter to know that I could look at other people and I had other options And that in my community in Oakland, if I gave a damn, I could go out and be like, hey, have you heard of this person? They're not in either of the parties because like, honestly, the party didn't matter. And to this day, like I know Libby Schaaf's name. I don't know what party she's in. It didn't matter. So that to me, that alone makes me support rake choice voting because we had choices. And right now we don't have choices in so many elections. Yeah. I don't know. I just run a better campaign and gerrymandering first. Like, let's just like baby step this. Well, by the way, California (laughs) is, is an example of a state that does have an independent commission. uh, uh, And it's working. California, Iowa. um, I can't remember. There's, there's three or four States that I think have, have done some innovative stuff with that and a good job. And, and, and uh, uh, has infuriated both parties with their, with their draft that Mm -hmm. came out. Although they also were fairly unprofessional about it. They they released it on like a postage stamp size JPEG that had (laughs) like a, <laughs> graphics over some of the district lines and everything. So m- maybe they need to get somebody who's, you know, uh, uh, proofing the stuff that they are putting out there. But uh, yeah, but safe districts aren't so much a thing here. I was raised in Orange County, California. I was raised in Irvine, yep. which was super Republican my whole life. And now we're being represented very well by my favorite congresswoman, um, Katie, Katie Porter. Porter right? I yeah. love her. And I never thought in a million years that I would love the congresswoman from Irvine. Never saw that coming. So just the fact that that district even could be flipped, I was shocked. And there's quite a few districts that that did in the past few she years. She tends to be a star of, of congressional dish, Katie Porter. Oh, I love her. Yeah, you are, I love you are, her. She, she, I, what I like the most about Katie Porter, and, and if you only know her from the partisan elements of, you know, the, the tribal warfare that happens in Congress, I would uh, always encourage you to listen to congressional dish. But 
and all the the hearings that aren't about things that you read about in the news, and and I would say specifically your uh, uh, a sleep rocker episode was was an example. I believe she was like she's just a good consumer advocate. She's just a good public yeah. advocate that just ant, like asks not loaded but pointed questions that are designed to elicit information. And then you know every once in a while when she gets some red beat, she yeah, certainly knows you know, how to we, n- n- knows, she knows how to make a a campaign ad uh, when when it when it matters. But like by and large, I, I've I I too did I would not have considered myself a a fan of Katie Porter's politics per se, but I have, I have grown an appreciation uh, listening to your podcast. We, we dated well, I mean, in the just 90s. Just knowing so that she's about it. I, so, you know, I'll just let you all go. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's the reason why we have free COVID tests in this country yeah. or did. I mean, now they don't, I don't know where to get the free ones anymore, but for that entire, you know, peak of the pandemic, that was because Katie Porter demanded that the head of the CDC in public promise that our taxes would be paying for free COVID tests. Yeah. And had she not done that and made him say it in public, I really don't think it would have happened. So it's like, I just think the power of the way these people use the hearings, AOC is good at it too. You can really use those opportunities to make a difference. And what I love about Katie Porter is that she does. She's figured that out. And she also spends those five minutes really wisely and gets us answers. You know, it's not always about the soundbite for her. She's getting real information. So um, and those people that use those five minutes to get answers, they're so rare. I spend so much of my time looking at these politicians that are making speeches, yeah. even though nobody's watching. No. Oh, their, their district is because they, they cut it up for blurbs and send it to the local paper. So it's, it's for the benefit mm-hmm. of their, this, this is, I think we talked about it's this benefit when for it themselves. came on your, your bonus episode uh, on, on the congressional dish that like when, when you're working in the house and you watch these people, they, they zoom the camera in. So that it looks like, and they have their aides sit directly behind them. So it looks like they're addressing mm-hmm. this and they, Mr. Speaker, I can't believe. And when you walk into it, it's, there's seven people there. The, the guy banging the gavels from Guam because yeah. they let him hold it. <laughs> and the whole point of it is so that they can send the, the the video footage back to their local media and and now through social media. And everybody at home goes, damn, Rob's giving them hell. You know, uh, Amer- uh, Congress is a bunch of crooks, except for our guy, Rob. Rob's the last two great American. He's a fire breather, that Rob. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in a safe district that he couldn't lose if he got caught, yes. you know, yeah. uh, uh, robbing somebody. Oh, well, I feel like we solved everything. Uh, we got it all uh, knocked out. The world is a much better place now. You're welcome. Uh, Heaton, what do you got coming up on the show? Uh, so this this is uh, coming out next. What is to us next week? It, well, it's today, of course, for everybody listening. Right. But, but, but today so, is uh, Wednesday. Yeah, you know what? Okay, Wednesday, I've, December 1st. Is I've, when got, this I've got a really. Oh, no, sorry. Sorry. November 24th. That's when it's coming. I've got a really fun episode that has absolutely nothing to do with Thanksgiving. Okay. Uh, I interviewed a great, really good talker historian named Margaret McMillan about how war affects society. I love big abstract thinky crap about how that's your bread and butter and And she like i and i i she's one of those guests where at the end of the conversation i'm like man i'm glad i drank coffee before i talked to this lady she is sharp but we get into like the nature of warfare how how war manifests um ways that society either induces a martial element or decries a martial element i even asked her at one point if football catalyzes our martial instincts or whether it's a catharsis for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's a fun episode. And so it's good. So check out the political orphanage. And of course, congressional dish, what do you got coming up? 
So the episode I'm working on, I kind of alluded to it, but there was this low key bill signed into law that really expands our economic war, also known as sanctions against Nicaragua, because they just had an election and we don't like who won it. So um, I know that there has been some hearings in the Senate committee chaired by Bob Menendez, who's a Democrat. Wait, he's still in there? Didn't he Violate oh, yeah. a bunch of laws and oh, yeah. get, do some but corrupt it's things. It's like fine. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. The Democrats didn't care. Um, yeah. So he's he's still the head of that committee. <laughs> and then um, Marco Rubio is there, too. So they're really good at partnering up in regime changes. Yeah. So I'm going to watch that hearing, read the bill, look into like what exactly is going on there. Um Yeah. So we're going to talk about that regime change. And then around the same time, the defense authorization should be done. And so I don't know. I want to know what's going on in Nicaragua. So that's basically what I'm researching while I wait for the avalanche legislation that I'm very, very on brand episodes for the both of you. I'm very excited as a listener to both of your programs. Uh, (laughs) And of course uh, this show will interview my mom on Friday. So, so of course, uh, for real. uh, Oh no, she's, she's a regular on the show, but uh, (laughs) Gloria young, Gloria young uh, is, is a, a a regular on the program. It's been a while since we've spoken to her, but uh, she has become very frustrated with the, 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 the Democrats in action in, in Congress. Uh, so we, we will get her, get her opinions on uh, the Friday episode, but for everybody who is listening, uh, have a happy Thanksgiving. Hopefully you, everybody travels, uh, safely and, uh, and there we go. That's about it. Uh, for Jen Briney and Andrew Heaton, I'm Justin Robert Young. Uh, a reminder that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics, but this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Happy Thanksgiving. No publicly funded stadiums. <laughs> All right, formatting's a bit weird, but if we have $10 tier members, then they got to get shouted out even in the weird political triad episodes. And so the people that head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and at the $10 level support us are Idris Arslandian, DJ Katie Mack, Niemeister, Dr. G. Lord, Scale, the Quince, and Admiral Flapjack, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicery, TV salesman or spy, he really... And vote for Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc Edison, no mention in the podcast. Please, Dotcom Junkie, DP4 Bongo, <clears throat> Pop Gold, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Double K Ranch, Yield Pinball Shop, John, Snuffy's Off Route 44, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert. Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, D Laser, just another pilot, Middle Age Mike, the Jen, Will, J Pink, and Andrew. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everybody. One more time. Thank you. My my thanks go to you for making all of this possible. Enjoy the holiday. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.